No Cross, No Crown, a discourse showing the nature and discipline of the Holy Cross of Christ, and that the denial of self and daily bearing of Christ's cross is the only way to the rest and kingdom of God. By William Penn Forward The treatise entitled No Cross, No Crown, written by William Penn during his imprisonment in the Tower of London in 1668, has justly been considered among the best productions of his pen. His education and rank in life eminently qualified him to judge of the emptiness, vanity, and sinfulness of those worldly pleasures and compliances which he here censures, and against which he produces such conclusive arguments from the Holy Scriptures. Admired and courted for his talents and accomplishments, beloved for his amiable disposition and engaging manners, with the road to honor and preferment open before him, he had all the inducements that the world could offer to pursue its gratifications. But in the vigor and freshness of youth, when all before him was bright and promising, in obedience to the will of his heavenly Father, William Penn voluntarily relinquished his prospects of earthly honor and advantage, renounced the fashions and customs of the age, and lived a serious, self-denying life, in conformity with the example of the holy men of ancient time and the precepts of our Lord and his apostles, as set forth in the scriptures of truth. In consequence of this change, he endured much opposition from his relations and friends, and was even banished from his father's house. But neither these trials nor his subsequent imprisonment could shake his constancy nor induce him to shrink from what he believed to be his religious duty. And God, whom he endeavored to serve and honor in the midst of scorn and reproach, not only supported him above the fear of man and filled his soul with peace and contentment, but restored his place in the esteem and affections of his relatives and made him honorable in the eyes of the world for his Christian virtues. His father loved him with increased tenderness and with his dying breath bore testimony in favor of the religious principles which his son had adopted. William Penn was in the twenty-fourth year of his age when he wrote No Cross, No Crown. It was not, therefore, produced by weariness of the world or that disgust which arises from long indulgence. It was the result of a calm and deliberate survey of the world's manners and customs, viewed with the eye of a sincere and devoted Christian. He thought and felt and wrote as one sensible of the dignity and noble endowments of man, and of his high destiny as an immortal being. The solidity of the argument, the depth of Christian experience, the exalted morality and pure religion with which the work is fraught, commend it to the serious and attentive perusal of all denominations of Christendom. William Evans and Thomas Evans, 1837 Preface by William Penn Reader the great business of man's life is to answer the end for which he lives, and that is, to glorify God and experience his salvation. This is the decree of heaven, as old as the world, but so it is that man minds nothing less than what he should mind most, and refuses to inquire into his own being, its origin, duty, and end, choosing rather to dedicate his days to gratify the pride greed, and luxury of his heart, as if he had been born for himself, or given himself being, and so not subject to the reckoning and judgment of a superior power. To this lamentable predicament poor man has brought himself, by his disobedience to the law of God in his heart, by doing that which he knows he should not do, and leaving undone what he knows he should do. So long as this disease continues upon man, he will make God his enemy, and make himself incapable of the love and salvation which God has manifested by his Son, Jesus Christ, to the world. If, reader, you are such a one, my counsel to you is to retire into yourself and take a view of the condition of your soul, for Christ has given you light with which to do it. Search carefully and thoroughly, your life hangs upon it. Your soul is at stake. Your life is but once to be lived. If you abuse it, the loss is irreparable. 
the world is not price enough to ransom you. Will you then, for such a world as this, ignore the time of your visitation and lose your soul? Oh, do not provoke God to reject you. Do you know what it is to be rejected? It is Tophet. It is hell, the eternal anguish of the damned. O oh, reader, as one knowing the terrors of the Lord, I persuade you to be serious, diligent, and fervent about your own salvation. As one knowing the comfort, peace, joy, and pleasure of the ways of righteousness, I exhort and invite you to embrace the reproofs and convictions of Christ's light and spirit in your own conscience and bear the judgment of your sin. The fire burns only the stubble. The wind blows only the chaff. Yield your body, soul, and spirit to him who makes all things new, a new heavens and a new earth, new love, new joy, new peace, new works, a new life and conduct. Men have grown corrupt and drossy by sin, and they must be saved through fire, which purges it away. For this reason, the word of God is compared to a fire, and the day of salvation to an oven, and Christ himself to a refiner of gold and a purifier of silver. Come, reader, hearken to me a while. I seek your salvation. That is my design. A refiner has come near you. His grace has appeared to you, a grace which shows you the world's lusts and teaches you to deny them. Receive his leaven, and it will change you. Receive his medicine, and it will cure you. He is as infallible as he is free. A touch of his garment did it of old, and will do it still, for his virtue is the same, and cannot be exhausted. In him the fullness dwells. Blessed be God for his sufficiency. He laid help upon him, that he might be mighty to save all that come to God through him. Do so, and he will change you. Yes, he will change your vile body like unto his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. What then must we do to be witnesses of his power and love? This is the crown, but where is the cross? Where is the bitter cup and bloody baptism? Come, reader, be like him. For this transcendent joy, lift up your head above the world. Then your salvation will draw near indeed. Christ's cross is Christ's way to Christ's crown. This is the subject of the following discourse, first written during my confinement in the Tower of London in the year 1668, now reprinted with great enlargement of matter and testimonies, that you may be one to Christ, or if one already, brought nearer to him. It is a path which God, in his everlasting kindness, guided my feet into in the flower of my youth, when about twenty-two years of age. He took me by the hand and led me out of the pleasures, vanities, and hopes of the world. I have tasted of Christ's judgments and of his mercies, and of the world's frowns and reproaches. I rejoice in my experience and dedicate it to your service in Christ. To my country and to the world of Christians I leave it. May God, if he please, make it effectual to them all and turn their hearts from that envy, hatred, and bitterness they have one against another about worldly things, sacrificing humanity and charity to ambition and covetousness, because of which they fill the earth with trouble and depression. And may they receive the Spirit of Christ into their hearts, the fruits of which are love, peace, joy, temperance and patience, brotherly kindness and charity, and so in body, soul, and spirit make a triple league against the world, the flesh, and the devil, the only common enemies of mankind. Thus, having conquered their enemies by the power of the cross of Jesus, and through a life of self-denial, they may at last attain to the eternal rest and kingdom of God. So desires, and so prays, your fervent Christian friend, William Penn. Chapter 1 A Crossless Christianity Though the knowledge and obedience of the doctrine of the cross of Christ be of infinite importance to the souls of men, being the only door to true Christianity, 
and the path which the ancients ever trod to blessedness. Yet, with extreme affliction, let me say, it is so little understood, so much neglected, and what is worse, so bitterly contradicted by the vanity, superstition, and intemperance of professed Christians. Indeed, such is the state of things in this day, that we must either renounce a belief in what the Lord Jesus has told us, that whosoever does not take up his cross daily and come after me cannot be my disciple, or, admitting it for truth, conclude that the generality of Christians do miserably deceive themselves in the great business of Christianity and disappoint their own salvation. For let us be ever so tender and charitable in the survey of those nations that claim an interest in the holy name of Christ. If we will be just, too, we must acknowledge that, after all the gracious advantages of light which these latter ages of the world have received, by the coming, life, doctrine, miracles, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, with the gifts of His Holy Spirit, to which we can add the writings, labors, and martyrdom of his dear followers in all times. There seems very little left of Christianity but the name, and lamentably, the name Christian, being now usurped by the old heathen nature and life, makes so many of the professors of it but true heathens in disguise. For though they do not worship the same idols, yet they worship Christ with the same heart and they can never do otherwise while they live in the same lusts. The unmortified Christian and the heathen are of the same religion. For though they have different objects to which they direct their prayers, still the adoration in both is but forced and ceremonious, and the deity they truly worship is the God of this world, the great Lord of lusts. To him they bow with all the powers of soul and sense. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? And how shall we pass away our time? Which way may we gather wealth, increase power, enlarge our territories, and dignify and perpetuate our names and families in the earth? This base sensuality is comprised by the beloved Apostle John in these words, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, which are not of the Father, but of the world that lies in wickedness. It is a mournful reflection, but a truth, which will not be denied, that these worldly lusts fill up a great part of the study, care, and conduct of Christendom. And what aggravates the misery is that these things grow with time, for as the world is older, it is worse. The examples of former lewd ages and their miserable conclusions have not deterred, but rather excited ours. Indeed, the people of this day seem improvers of the old stock of impiety, and have carried it so much further than former examples, that instead of advancing in virtue, they have scandalously fallen below the life of heathens. Their high-mindedness, lasciviousness, uncleanness, drunkenness, swearing, lying, envy, backbiting, cruelty, treachery, covetousness, injustice, and oppression are so common and committed with such invention and excess that they have stumbled and embittered infidels and made them scorn that holy religion to which their good example should have won their affections. This miserable defection from primitive times, when the glory of Christianity was the purity of its professors, I cannot but call the second and worst part of the tragedy which came upon the blessed Savior of mankind. For the Jews, from the power of ignorance and their prejudice against the unworldly way of his appearance, would not acknowledge him when he came, and so for two or three years persecuted and finally crucified him in one day. But the false Christians' cruelty lasts much longer. They have first, with Judas, professed him, and then, for these many ages, most basely betrayed, persecuted, and crucified him by a perpetual apostasy and conduct from the self-denial and holiness of his doctrine, their lies showing the falseness of their faith. These are they that the author of the epistle to the Hebrews tells us, crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. Their defiled hearts, John, in his revelation, calls the streets of Sodom and Egypt, spiritually so-called, 
where he beheld the Lord Jesus crucified long after he had ascended. As Christ said of old that a man's enemies are those of his own house, so Christ's enemies are now chiefly those of his own profession. Indeed, these spit upon him, nail and pierce him, crown him with thorns, and give him gall and vinegar to drink. Nor is this hard to apprehend, for they that live in the same evil nature and seed that the Jews did, who crucified him outwardly, must necessarily crucify him inwardly. They that reject the grace now in their own hearts are one in stock and generation with the hard-hearted Jews who resisted the grace that then appeared in and by Christ. Sin is of one nature all the world over. For though a liar is not a drunkard, nor a swearer a whoremonger, nor are either properly a murderer, yet they are all of one church, all branches of the one wicked root, all of one family. They have but one father, the devil, as Christ said to the professing Jews, the visible church of that age. He slighted their pretensions to Abraham and Moses and plainly told them, he that committed sin was the servant of sin. They did the devil's works and therefore were the devil's children. This argument will always hold upon the same reasons and therefore it is good still. His servants you are, says Paul, whom you obey. And John says to the church of old, Let no man deceive you. He that commits sin is of the devil. Was Judas a better Christian for crying, Hail, Master, and kissing Christ? By no means. These words were the signal of his treachery, the token given by which the bloody Jews should know and take him. He called him Master, but betrayed him. He kissed, but sold him to be killed. This is the substance of the false Christian's religion. If a man asks them, Is Christ your Lord? They will cry, God forbid anything else. Yes, he is our Lord. Very well. But do you keep his commandments? No. How should we? How then are you his disciples? It is impossible, they say. What? Would you have us keep his commandments? No man can. But is it impossible to do that? without which Christ has made it impossible to be a Christian? Is Christ unreasonable? Does he reap where he has not sown, or require where he has not enabled? Thus it is that, with Judas, they call him master, but take part with the evil of the world to betray him. They kiss and embrace him, as far as their profession goes, and then sell him to gratify the passions they most indulge. Let no man deceive his own soul, Grapes are not gathered of thorns, nor figs of thistles. A wolf is not a sheep, nor is a vulture a dove. Whatever form, people, or church you are of, this is the truth of God to mankind. They who have the form of godliness, but by their unmortified lives deny its power, make up the false church, not the true. And though this church may call herself the Lamb's bride, or the church of Christ. She is that mystery or mysterious Babylon, who is fitly called by the Holy Spirit, the mother of harlots and all abominations. She has degenerated from Christian chastity and purity into all the enormities of heathen Babylon, a sumptuous city of old time, much noted as the seat of the kings of Babylon, and at that time a place of the greatest pride and luxury. As she was then, so mystical Babylon is now, the great enemy of God's true people. True it is that they who are born of the flesh hate and persecute those who are born of the Spirit, the circumcised in heart. These cannot acknowledge nor worship God according to Babylon's inventions, methods, and prescriptions, nor receive for doctrine her vain traditions any more than they can comply with her corrupt fashions and customs in their conduct. And because they cannot conform, apostate Babylon quickly turns persecutor. It is not enough that she herself declines from ancient purity. Others must do so too. She will give those no rest who will not partake with her in her degeneracy or receive her mark. Are any wiser than she, than the so-called mother church? No, no, nor can any make war with the beast she rides upon, 
those worldly powers that protect her and vow to maintain her against the cries of her dissenters. Apostasy and superstition are ever proud and impatient of dissent. All must conform or perish. Therefore, the slain witnesses and the blood of the souls under the altar are found within the walls of this mystical Babylon, this great city of false Christians, and are charged upon her by the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation. The children of Babylon are reduced so entirely under the dominion of darkness by means of their continued disobedience to the manifestation of the divine light in their souls that they forget what man once was or what they should now be. They do not recognize true and pure Christianity when they meet it, though they pride themselves in professing it. Their views about salvation are so carnal and false that they call good evil and evil good. They make a devil a Christian and a saint a devil. And though the unrighteous indulgence of their lives is a source of lamentation, as it is of destruction to themselves, yet the false notion that they may be children of God while in a state of disobedience to his holy commandments is, of all other deceptions, the most deadly to their eternal condition. Alas, they believe they are disciples of Jesus, even though they revolt from his cross. They flatter themselves members of his true church, which is without spot or wrinkle, notwithstanding their lives are full of spots and wrinkles, for they are at peace in sin and under security in their transgression. Their vain hope silences their inward convictions and buries all tender motions to repentance, so that their mistake about their duty to God is as mischievous as their rebellion against Him. Thus they walk on precipices and flatter themselves till the grave swallows them up, and the judgment of the great God breaks their lethargy and undeceives their poor, wretched souls with the anguish of the wicked as the reward of their work. This has been, is, and will be the doom of all worldly Christians, an end so dreadful that compassion alone would be sufficient to excite me to dissuade all against the world's superstition and lusts, and to invite the professors of Christianity to the knowledge and obedience of the daily cross of Christ as the only way given by Him and appointed unto us to blessedness. By this daily cross, those who now do but usurp the name may have the thing itself, and by its power they may be made partakers of the resurrection that is in Christ Jesus unto newness of life. For they that are truly in Christ, that is, redeemed by him and engrafted in him, are new creatures. They have received a new will, such as does the will of God, not their own. They pray in truth. They do not mock God when they say, Your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. They have new affections, such as are set on things above, and make Christ their eternal treasure. They have new faith, such as overcomes the snares and temptations of the world's spirit in themselves, or as it appears through others. And they have new works, not of superstitious contrivance or of human invention, but the pure fruits of the Spirit of Christ working in them, such as love, joy, peace, meekness, long-suffering, temperance, brotherly kindness, faith, patience, gentleness, and goodness, against which there is no law. They who do not have this Spirit of Christ and walk not in it, the Apostle Paul has told us, are none of his. But the wrath of God and the condemnation of the law will lie upon them. There is indeed no condemnation to them that are in Christ, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. But by this same doctrine, they who do not walk according to that Holy Spirit are not in Christ. These have no inheritance in Him, nor a just claim to salvation by Him, and consequently there is condemnation to such. The religion of the wicked is a lie. There is no peace, says the prophet, to the wicked. Indeed, there can be none, for they are reproved in their own consciences and condemned in their own hearts for all their disobedience. Go where they will, rebukes go with them, 
and oftentimes terrors too. It is an offended God who pricks them, and by his light sets their sins in order before them. Sometimes they strive to appease him by their outward devotion and worship, but in vain. For the true worship of God is the doing of his will, which will they transgress. Sometimes they fly to sports and company to drown the reprover's voice and blunt his arrows, to chase away troubled thoughts and secure themselves out of the reach of the disquieter of their pleasures. But the Almighty, sooner or later, is sure to overtake them. There is no flying from his justice for those who reject the terms of his mercy. Indeed, their accuser is always with them. They can no more be rid of him than of themselves. He is in the midst of them and will stick close to them. That spirit which bears witness with the spirits of the just will bear witness against theirs. Yes, their own hearts will abundantly condemn them. And if our heart condemns us, says the Apostle John, God is greater and knows all things. That is, there is no escaping the judgment of God if a man is not able to escape the condemnation of himself. In that day, proud and luxurious Christians shall learn that God is no respecter of persons, that all sects, denominations, and names shall be swallowed up in these two kinds, sheep and goats, just and unjust. Indeed, the very righteous must be tried, which made a holy man cry out, If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? If their thoughts, words, and works must stand the test and come under the scrutiny before the impartial judge of heaven and earth, how then should the ungodly be exempted? No, we are told by him that cannot lie that many shall then cry, Lord, Lord. They shall set forth their profession and recount the works they have done in his name, and yet be rejected with this awful sentence, Depart from me. You workers of iniquity, I know you not. As if he had said, Be gone, you evildoers, for though you have professed me, I do not know you. Go hence, and go to the gods whom you have served, your beloved lusts which you have worshipped, and the evil world that you have so much coveted and adored. Let them save you now, if they can, from the wrath to come upon you, which is the wages of the deeds you have done. Here is the end of their work who build upon the sand. The breath of the judge will blow it down, and woeful will be its fall. But to the righteous the sentence is changed, and the judge smiles. He casts the eye of love upon his own sheep and invites them with a, Come, you blessed of my father, who, through patient continuance in well-doing, have long waited for immortality. You have been the true companions of my tribulations and cross, and with unwearied faithfulness and obedience to my holy will have valiantly endured to the end, looking unto me, the author of your precious faith, for the recompense of reward, which I have promised to them that love me and faint not. Oh, enter into the joy of your Lord, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Oh, Christendom! My soul most fervently prays that after all your lofty professions of Christ and his meek and holy religion, your unsuitable and unchristlike life may not cast you off at that great tribunal of the world, and you lose this great salvation at last. Hear me once, I beseech you. Can Christ be your Lord, and you not obey him? Or can you be his servant, and yet not truly serve him? Be not deceived, such as you sow, that you shall reap. He is not your Savior, while you reject his grace in your heart, by which he would save you. Come now, what has he saved you from? Has he saved you from your sinful lusts, your worldly affections and vain conversations? If not, then he is not your Savior. For though he be offered a Savior to all, yet he is actually a Savior to those only who are saved by Him. And none are saved by Him who still live in those evils by which they are lost to God and from which He came to save them. It is from sin 
that Christ is come to save man, and from death and wrath as the wages of it. But those who are not saved, that is, truly delivered by the power of Christ in their souls from the power that sin has had over them, can never be saved from the death and wrath which are the certain wages of the sin they live in. So far as people obtain victory over the evil and fleshly lusts to which they have been addicted, that far they are truly saved, and are witnesses of the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. Indeed, his name shows his work, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Behold, said John of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold him whom God has given as a light to the people and for salvation to as many as receive his light and grace in their hearts and take up their daily cross and follow him, such as would rather deny themselves the pleasure of fulfilling their lusts than sin against the knowledge he has given them of his will or do that which they know they ought not to do. Chapter 2 A Great Apostasy By all which has been said, O Christendom, and by the lamp that the light has lit in you, if you would use it, it should evidently appear, first, how great your backsliding has been. For instead of the temple of the Lord, you have become a cage of unclean birds, and instead of a house of prayer, you are a den of thieves, a synagogue of Satan, and the dwelling of every defiled spirit. And second, that under all this manifest defection, you have nevertheless valued your corrupt self based upon your profession of Christianity, and fearfully deluded yourself with the hopes of salvation. The first makes your disease dangerous, but the last makes it almost incurable. Nevertheless, there is mercy with the God of compassion that he may be feared, He takes no delight in the eternal death of poor sinners and backsliders, but desires that all should come to the knowledge and obedience of the truth and be saved. Thus he has sent forth his Son as a propitiation, and given him as a Savior to take away the sins of the whole world, that those who believe and follow him may feel the righteousness of God in the remission of their sins and the blotting out of their transgressions forever." Behold the remedy, an infallible cure, one of God's appointing, a precious antidote indeed that never failed, a universal medicine which no malady could ever escape. But you will say, what is Christ and where is he to be found? How is he received and applied in order to work this mighty cure? I will tell you then. First, he is the great spiritual light of the world who enlightens everyone that comes into the world, John 1, 9. As such, he manifests to men their deeds of darkness and wickedness and reproves them for committing them. Secondly, he is not far away from you, as the Apostle Paul said of God to the Athenians. And Christ himself says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him, and he with me. What door can this be but that of the heart of man? But alas, like the inn of old, you have been full of other guests. Your affections have entertained other lovers. There has been no room for your Savior in your soul. Therefore, salvation has not yet come into your house, though it has come to your door and you have often been offered it, and have professed it long. But if he still calls, if he still knocks, that is, if his light yet shines and reproves you, then there is hope that your day is not over, and that repentance is not hidden from your eyes. Yes, his love is toward you still, and his holy invitation continues in order to save you. Therefore, O Christendom, believe, receive, and apply him rightly. This is of absolute necessity that your soul may live forever with him. He told the Jews, If you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins, and where I go, you cannot come. Because they believed him not, 
they did not receive him, nor any benefit by him. But they that believed him received him. As many as received him, his own beloved disciple tells us, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, which are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is, these are not children of God according to the fashions, prescriptions, and traditions of men. These are not his church and people after the will of flesh and blood, or the inventions of carnal men unacquainted with the regeneration and power of his Holy Spirit. No, these are born of God according to his will and the working and sanctification of his Spirit and word of life in them. Such as these are well acquainted with the right application of Christ, for he is indeed made unto them propitiation, reconciliation, salvation, righteousness, redemption, and justification. So I say to you, unless you believe that he who stands at the door of your heart and knocks and sets your sins in order before you and calls you to repentance is the Savior of the world, you too will die in your sins, and where he has gone, you will never come. For if you do not believe in him, it is impossible that he will do you good or affect your salvation. Christ works not against faith, but by it. It is said of old that he did not do many mighty works in some places because the people did not believe in him. If you truly believe in him, your ear will be attentive to his voice in you, and the door of your heart will open to his knocks. You will yield to the discoveries of his light, and the teachings of his grace will be very dear to you. It is the nature of true faith to beget a holy fear of offending God, a deep reverence for his precepts, and a most tender regard to the inward testimony of his spirit as that by which his children, in all ages, have safely been led to glory. For as they that truly believe receive Christ in all his offers to the soul, so those who thus receive him receive power to become the sons of God, that is, they receive an inward power and ability to do whatever he requires, strength to mortify their lusts, to control their affections, resist evil motions, deny themselves, and overcome the world in its most enticing appearances. This is the life of the blessed cross of Christ, which is the subject of the following discourse, and this is what you, O oh man, must take up, if you intend to be a disciple of Jesus." For you cannot truly receive Christ, or believe in him, while you reject his cross. Receiving Christ is the means appointed of God unto salvation, and so bearing your daily cross after him is the true testimony of having received him, and the great token of discipleship. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. This, Christendom is what you have so much lacked, and the lack of it has proved the cause of your miserable declension from pure Christianity. Consider this well, for it is your duty, and will be of great use to your restoration. As the proper knowledge of a disease guides the physician to make a right and safe judgment in the application of his medicine, so it will much enlighten you in the way of your recovery to know and weigh the first cause of this spiritual fault and malady which has befallen you. To do this, a general view of the primitive state of Christianity and the work of those who first labored in Christ's vineyard will be needful. The work of apostleship, we are told by a principal laborer in it, was to turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. That is, Instead of yielding to the temptations and motions of Satan, who is the prince of darkness or wickedness, the one word being a metaphor for the other, by whose power their understandings were obscured and their souls held in the service of sin, they should turn their minds to the appearance of Christ, the light and Savior of the world. By his light he shines in their souls and thereby gives them a sight of their sins, he uncovers every temptation and motion in them unto evil, and reproves them wherever they give way thereto, that so they might become the children of light, 
and walk in the path of righteousness. For this blessed work of reformation, Christ endued his apostles with his spirit and power that men might no longer sleep in the security of sin and ignorance of God, but awaken to righteousness and receive life from the Lord Jesus Christ. These then were enabled to leave off sinning, deny themselves the pleasures of wickedness, and by true repentance turn their hearts to God in well-doing, in which they found peace. And truly, God so blessed the faithful labors of those poor tradesmen, his great ambassadors to mankind, that in a few years many thousands who had lived without God in the world, without a sense or fear of him, in lawlessness, and as strangers to the work of his Spirit in their hearts, being captivated by fleshly lusts, were inwardly struck and quickened by the word of life and made sensible of the coming and power of the Lord Jesus Christ as a judge and lawgiver in their souls. By his holy light and spirit, the hidden things of darkness were brought to light and condemned. The pure repentance from those dead works was begotten in them that they might serve the living God in newness of spirit. Consequently, these lived no longer unto themselves, nor were they carried away by the former lust which had seduced them from the true fear of God. Instead, the law of the spirit of life, by which they overcame the law of sin and death, was their delight, and therein they meditated day and night. Their regard towards God was no longer derived from the precepts of men, but from the knowledge they had received by his own work and impressions in their souls, they had forsaken their old masters, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and delivered themselves up to the holy guidance of the grace of Christ, which taught them to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present life. Titus 2.11 This is the cross of Christ indeed, and here is the victory it gives to those that take it up. By this cross... They died daily to the old life they had lived, and by a holy watchfulness against the secret motions of evil in their hearts, they crushed sin in its conception, yes, even in its temptations, so that, as the Apostle John advises, they kept themselves that the evil one touched them not. The light which Satan cannot endure, and with which Christ had enlightened them, uncovered their adversary in all his approaches and assaults upon the mind, and the power they received through their obedience to the manifestations of that blessed light enabled them to resist and vanquish him in all his stratagems. So it was that, where once nothing was examined, now nothing went unexamined. Every thought must come to judgment, and the rise and tendency of it must be well approved, before they allowed it any room in their minds. There was no fear of entertaining enemies for friends while this strict guard was kept upon the very gateway of the soul. The old heavens and earth, that is, the old earthly manner of living and the old carnal or shadowy worship, passed away quickly, and every day all things became new. He was no more a Jew who was one outwardly, nor was circumcision that which was in the flesh, but he was a Jew who was one inwardly, and circumcision was of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of man, but of God. Romans two twenty-eight and 29 The glory of the cross shines so conspicuously through self-denial in the lives of those who daily bore it, that it filled the heathen with astonishment, and in a small time so shook their altars, discredited their oracles, struck the multitude, invaded the court, and overcame their armies, that it led priests, magistrates, and generals in triumph after it as trophies of its power and victory. While this integrity dwelt with Christians, mighty was the presence, and invincible the power that attended them. It quenched fire, daunted lions, turned the edge of the sword, outfaced instruments of cruelty, convicted judges, and converted executioners. The ways their enemies sought to destroy them only increased them, and by the deep wisdom of God, those who in all their designs endeavored to extinguish the truth were made great promoters of it. 
among the faithful not a vain thought, nor an idle word, nor an unseemly action was permitted, no, not even an immodest look. There was no courtly dress, flashy apparel, flattering addresses, or personal honors. Much less could those lewd immoralities and scandalous vices now in vogue with Christians find either example or place among them. Their great care was not how to sport away their precious time, but how to redeem it, that they might have enough to work out their great salvation with fear and trembling, not with balls and masquerades, with playhouses, dancing, feasting, and gaming, no, no, to make their heavenly calling and election sure was much dearer to them than the poor and trifling joys of mortality. Having, with Moses, seen him that is invisible, and found that his loving kindness was better than life, and the peace of his spirit more than the favor of princes, so they feared not Caesar's wrath, and chose rather to sustain the afflictions of Christ's true pilgrims than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Yes, they esteemed his reproaches of more value than the perishing treasures of the earth. And if the tribulations of Christianity were more desirable to them than the comforts of the world, and the reproaches of the one more enticing than all the honors of the other, then there was surely no temptation in the world that could shake the integrity of Christendom. By this short view of what Christendom was, you may see, O Christians, what you are not and what you ought to be. But how is it that from a people so meek, merciful, self-denying, suffering, temperate, holy, just, and good, and so like Christ, whose name she bore, we find a Christendom now that is superstitious, idolatrous, persecuting, proud, passionate, envious, malicious, selfish, drunken, lascivious, unclean, lying, swearing, cursing, covetous, oppressing, defrauding, with all other abominations known in the earth, and that to an excess justly scandalous to the worst of heathen ages, surpassing them more in evil than in time. I say, how came about this lamentable defection? I offer this as the undoubted reason of this degeneracy, namely, the disregard in your mind to the light of Christ shining in you, which first showed you your sins, reproved them, and taught and enabled you to deny and resist them. For it is certain that whatever measure of fear towards God and abstinence from unrighteousness you witness was not taught by the precepts of men, but by that light and grace which reveals the most secret thoughts and purposes of your heart, searches your most inward parts, sets your sins in order before you, and reproves you for them, not permitting one unfruitful thought, word, or work of darkness to go unjudged. So then, when you began to disregard this light and grace, to be careless about the holy watchfulness that was once set up in your heart, and did not keep watch there as formerly, for God's glory and for your own peace, then the restless enemy of man's good quickly took advantage of this slackness, and often surprised you with temptations, whose suitableness to your own inclinations made his conquest over you not difficult. Yes, you neglected to take up Christ's holy yoke, and to bear your daily cross. You were careless with your affections, and kept no check upon your affections, forgetting to keep accounts in your own conscience by Christ your light, the great bishop of your soul, and judge of your works. In this way, your holy fear decayed, and your love waxed cold, and so vanity abounded, and duty became burdensome. Then up came formality, instead of the power of godliness, and superstition, in place of Christ's working. And though Christ's business was to draw off the minds of his disciples from an outward temple with its carnal rites and services to the inward and spiritual worship of God, suitable to the nature of divinity, yet a worldly, human, pompous worship is brought in again, and a worldly priesthood, temple, and altar are reestablished. Now, the sons of God once more saw that the daughters of men were fair. That is, the pure eye grew dim which repentance had opened, 
and which saw no beauty outside of Christ. And the eye of lust was opened again by the God of the world. And then those worldly pleasures that make such as love them forget God, though they were once despised for the sake of Christ, began to recover their old beauty and interest in your affections, and liking them, they came to be the pursuit, care, and pleasure of your life. True, there still remain the exterior forms of worship and a nominal and verbal reverence to God and Christ, but this is all that survived, for the offense of the Holy Cross ceased, the power of godliness was denied, self-denial was lost, and though you became fruitful in the inventions of ceremonious ornaments, you remained barren in the blessed fruits of the Spirit. And alas, a thousand shells cannot make one kernel, nor can many dead corpses make one living man. Thus religion fell from experience to tradition, and worship fell from power to form, from life to letter. Instead of putting up lively and powerful requests to God, animated by a deep sense of need and the assistance of the Holy Spirit, by whom the ancients prayed, wrestled, and prevailed with God, behold, a prescribed repetition, a dull and insipid formality, made up of bowing and kneeling, special garments and furniture, perfumes, voices, and music, a performance fitter for the reception of some earthly prince than for the heavenly worship of the only true and immortal God, who is an eternal and invisible spirit. As your heart grew carnal, your religion did too, and not liking it as it was, you fashioned it to your liking. No doubt you forgot the words of the holy prophet, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And the saying of James, you ask and receive not. And why? Because you ask amiss, that is, with a heart that is not right, but insincere and unmortified, not in the faith that purifies the soul, and so can never receive what is asked. Thus, it may now be said in truth that the condition of many is made worse by their religion, for they are tempted to think themselves the better for it, though they are not. By this view that is given of your fall from primitive Christianity and the true cause of it, namely, a neglect of the daily cross of Christ, I trust the way of your recovery may be easily seen. At the door by which you went out, you must come in. As all was lost through neglecting and letting fall the daily cross, so taking up and enduring the daily cross will be your means of recovery. This is the way by which sinners and apostates become the disciples of Jesus. Whosoever, says Christ, will come after me and be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his daily cross and follow me. Nothing short of this will do. As it is sufficient, so it is indispensable. There is no crown but by the cross, no life eternal but through death. And it is only just that those evil and barbarous affections that crucified Christ afresh should now, by his holy cross, be crucified in you. Blood requires blood. His cross is the death of the sin that caused his death, and he is the death of death. According to that passage, O death, I will be your death.